Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 4. Today we will be continuing our exposition of the parables of our Lord in Mark chapter 4. And so please go with me there in your Bible. We have finally arrived at the last parable of this marvelous chapter. We've already taken time to expound the parable of the sower, the parable of the lamp, and the parable of the gradually growing seed. And we've considered how these parables are meant to depict the kingdom of God and what it is like and how it should come. We turn now to the parable of the mustard seed, which we read in verses 30 to 34. Then he said, To what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? It is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. But when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. And with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. But without a parable, he did not speak to them. And when they were alone, he explained all things to his disciples. Well, unlike the previous parable, which is unique to Mark, this parable is found in all three synoptic gospels. And as it occurs in the context here in Mark, it continues the agrarian imagery of seed being sown. It was spoken by our Lord as a prophetic prediction concerning the future and fate of the kingdom of God. And just like the parable before it, this parable depicts the generation and growth of God's kingdom from the time of Christ's first advent to the point of his second coming. This parable isn't about personal conversion or salvation or spiritual growth in the Christian life. It's rather about the worldwide progress of the kingdom of God as a whole from its humble beginnings to its climactic culmination. The parable of the growing seed in verses 26 to 29 emphasizes the continual and gradual growth of the kingdom from the time of its sowing until the time of its harvest at the end of the age. It teaches us that the kingdom would come mysteriously and miraculously and maturingly as we saw last week. Lord's Day. Now the parable of the mustard seed teaches us that the kingdom will come monumentally. The stress here is on the contrast between the obscure beginnings of the kingdom and its eventual monumental size. The kingdom begins small, 
but it grows with extraordinary and surprising increase until its final size and scope are impressively large and unexpectedly out of proportion to its small beginnings. And so as we unpack the teaching of our text, I want to point out four major features of what it's saying about the kingdom of God. First, there are perplexing questions. Second, humble beginnings. Third, surprising growth. And fourth, eventual greatness. Perplexing questions, humble beginnings, surprising growth, and eventual greatness. Well, in the first place, consider, here we have perplexing questions. Look at verse 30. Then he said, this is our Lord Jesus Christ speaking, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Well, the issue here is the definition and nature of the kingdom of God and what it's like and, again, how it'll be introduced to the world. We can define the kingdom of God and its present mode and manifestation as the dominion of God's manifest and consolidated reign through Jesus Christ. The kingdom is the sphere of God's saving power whereby he subdues the hearts of people to make them his willing subjects and his very own special possession. The kingdom is God's righteous reign in redemptive power and reality. The kingdom is the Spirit's making manifest divine grace and righteousness and power which reorient the fallen creation from its waywardness and bring it into alignment with the blessedness of the will of God. That's what the kingdom is. That God has a kingdom implies, of course, that he is a king. He is a king. Psalm 47.7 declares God is the king of all the earth. Verse 8 of that psalm says he is a king in regal session where God sits on his holy throne. He sits not to rest. God doesn't need to rest. He sits on the throne to reign. Isaiah 57.15 says he has a royal title. He's the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity. He also possesses the ensigns and adornments of royalty. He has a royal banner. Isaiah 5.26 says, He, God, will lift up his banner to the nations from afar. Isaiah 6.1 says, The train of his robe, his majestic, kingly, imperial robe. It's so great that it fills the entire temple. Isaiah 34, 6 says, The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. Isaiah 27, 1 says, He has a severe sword, great and strong, just like the kings of antiquity. He also wields a scepter. Hebrews 1, 8, A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. He also has a crown. 
Revelation 19.12 says, On his head were many crowns, not just one. He's the king of kings and lord of lords. And his dominion, says Daniel 7.14, is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. It is kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. So God is a king. He sits on his throne. He's reigning on his throne. He's decked out with royal attire. He possesses royal adornments and ensigns. He has a sword. He has a banner and so forth. Our God is the king. And he has never ceased reigning. But with the accomplishment of the finished work of our Lord Jesus Christ, with his resurrection, ascension, and session, the kingdom of God has now realized an inaugurated status as God the King of glory in heaven now exercises his rule and his reign mediatorily through the God-man mediator, Jesus Christ. But everybody back in the days of Jesus knew that God was a king. They didn't know precisely how he was going to take up the reins and reign, but they knew he was a king. And yet with the coming of Jesus, and with all the effusion of messianic proofs and evidences that were all about the Lord Jesus, now the people were wondering, where is this king? Where is he at? We know that our great God is a king. We know that he'll establish his kingdom when Messiah comes. So where is the appearing of this great God in all his glory? Where are his banner and his sword and his scepter? Will the kingdom at this time be restored to Israel? Their assumption, you see, was that if Jesus is the true Messiah, then he'll deliver the goods. He'll establish the kingdom of God. And they thought he would do it all at once with Israel at the center of it. But that wasn't his plan. Christ came and brought in the kingdom. He brings in the kingdom in stages. In stages. It would start small and end large. Its beginnings, you see, the, the beginnings of this kingdom were small and inconspicuous. But its destiny is to be grand and impressive. Its locality wouldn't be limited to Israel, but would extend worldwide. But during the interval between the obscure commencement of the kingdom and its climactic glory, during this interval, its presence cannot be discerned except by faith and the messianic identity of Jesus. A faith that receives his teachings as the authoritative word of God. A faith that holds that he alone has the words of eternal life. A faith that receives and bows down to his lordship. A faith that embraces invisible realities which human insight is incapable of perceiving. Because the life of discipleship entails walking by faith and not by sight. You couldn't see 
merely by looking at Jesus with your natural eyes that this is the Lord God of Israel in his glory who has come to reign. But that's what he was. It required the eye of faith. The multitudes, however, they weren't ready to hear this. For most, their false views and assumptions made their hearts unreceptive to the seed of Christ's teaching. And so as a master teacher, our Lord here introduces a couple of questions in verse 30 to tactfully challenge their assumptions and to cause them to reflect more carefully on the biblical testimony and to consider that the kingdom could and would in fact come contrary to their prevailing expectations. And so he says, to what shall we liken the kingdom of God? Or with what parable shall we picture it? Such a probing with provocative questions was common to the pedagogy of the rabbis. A statement that makes an assertion could be heard in the moment and soon forgotten. But a good question, a well-landed question, would stir up curiosity and it would promote further thought. The questions were calculated to draw in our Lord's hearers, to get them to engage more actively with his teaching, to spur them to move beyond the superficial hearing of the multitude into the committed hearing of true discipleship. The questions Jesus raises get right at the heart of the greatest doubts that were plaguing the people. And thus this passage teaches us, brethren, that we should always bring our doubts to the word of God. And expect that out of its sufficiency an answer can be yielded which is wholly adequate for sustaining our faith. Well, the questions Jesus raised were of particular concern to the disciples. Here they were with Jesus. They had forsaken everything to follow him. They had cast in their lot with him so that his fate was bound to theirs, or theirs rather was bound to his. His success would be their success. Any failure he would experience would be their failure. And at this point in time, this little band of disciples was just a little group. There had to be all kinds of internal questioning about all this. As doubts lingered in their minds, they had these assumptions and expectations about the kingdom of God. And yet, here they are with Christ, and there's this effusion of messianic proofs about him, which indicate his true identity as the Messiah, yet he's not ushering in the kingdom in any way along the lines of what they expected. And so naturally, doubts would linger in their minds. They would wonder. Would Jesus really succeed in his mission to bring in this kingdom that he's been preaching since Mark 1.15? Can he really do it? Would this carpenter from Nazareth and his motley crew really be able to overturn the status quo of the entire world? 
would they really be able to launch a worldwide religion that would extend God's saving reign to all the peoples of the earth? Considering all the antagonism and opposition to Christ in Mark chapter 3, the disciples had to be thinking, are we on the winning team or the losing team? Will serving Christ be worth it? Will it amount to anything substantial or significant? And these questions are also very pertinent to us. After all, what did Jesus teach about the influence and advance of his church in the world? Will the church be powerful or will it be defeated? Will it be the church militant on the advance or will it be the church cowarding in retreat and fear? Will the gospel advance to the ends of the earth? Or will it be only a small regional religion? Will the good news of the kingdom prevail over the false doctrines and cults and counterfeit religions that sometimes seem far more influential and formidable than our doctrine? Will God's work in Christ linger and then be lost? Will Christianity advance or will it come to a halt? Will world mission succeed? Will the gospel triumph after all? These were legitimate questions in the minds of the disciples. And the answer comes in the words of the parable and the verses that follow. So consider in the second place that here we have humble beginnings. The kingdom commences with humble beginnings. Beginnings, the text says. Look at verse 31. Jesus said that the kingdom is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. The seed in view is probably what we call black mustard, brassica negra. It was grown in and around Israel to make oils, powders, and pastes for use in medicines and in foods. One commentator cites how an ancient writer, Pliny the Elder, describes the use of mustard to treat serpent and scorpion bites, toothache, indigestion, asthma, epilepsy, dropsy, lethargy, leprous sores, and other illnesses, which is interesting. But its most common household use was as a condiment for seasoning. That comes as no surprise. Everybody was familiar with mustard because it grew prolifically in the land of Israel and it was a common household spice. Well, Jesus says here that the mustard seed is smaller than all the seeds on earth. And this, of course, is hyperbolic language. It's not the only time our Lord uses hyperbolic language. Skeptics have long tried to use this verse and parallel accounts to assert that the Bible is not inerrant after all because, they claim, Jesus spoke equivocally when he said that the mustard seed is the smallest seed on earth. They point out that they, in fact, are wiser 
than God in the flesh, and that they know more than him. And that there are, they say, smaller seeds in the world than the mustard seed. And so they say, well, if Jesus were really omniscient, uh, he, he would have known that and thus would not have spoken this error. So they claim. But the words of our Lord in this text constitute no contradiction or error. Jesus never intended his statement to conform to the modern standards of scientific precision. The Lord uses, and the Bible uses, phenomenological language quite liberally, which means that the Bible often describes things from the perspective of human observation and human experience. Jesus isn't speaking to a group of PhD students in horticulture at the University of Cambridge. His language is accommodated to the agrarian society in which he lived. It is adapted to the common experience of the crowd. And in their experience, the mustard seed was the smallest seed they had ever seen or handled. It was comparable to the size of a grain of sand or a fleck of black pepper that comes out of your pepper shaker. It would just be a little speck in the, in the palm of your hand. And by the first century A.D., the mustard seed became proverbial among rabbis for something tiny. Not once is mustard mentioned in the Old Testament, but it is mentioned some 200 times in Talmudic commentaries on the Hebrew Scriptures. Jesus here is following the rabbinical practice of appealing to the mustard seed for its proverbial tininess. He does this again in Matthew 17, 20, where he tells us, if you have faith as a mustard seed, then you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. That there, of course, is a metaphor, but the point is that a minuscule amount of faith is effective to accomplish the humanly impossible. Faith like a mustard seed. Well, the kingdom of God, he says, is like a mustard seed, which, when it is sown on the ground, is smaller than all the seeds on earth. Jesus had come as a sower, setting out to sow. He came to sow the kingdom. But its beginnings were small, humble, and obscure. And looking at Jesus and his disciples, I mean, who would have concluded that they would have been capable of establishing Christianity as the predominant faith of the Roman Empire, <laughs> for instance? Anybody in looking at them would have concluded that this was a small work, especially considering the number of people who lived in Israel and populated the Roman Empire. Yes, there are great multitudes thronging about them and pressing about them in every side, but the number of truly committed disciples is a very small flock. The Lord Jesus came into this world 
like an insignificant seed. And though he is the Lord our God who came to reign, he was buried and hidden away like a mustard seed in Mary's womb for nine months. When he was born, he was born in humble circumstances to humble parents in the humble little town of Bethlehem. For 30 years, he lived like an ordinary man. And as he came of age, he worked as an ordinary day laborer in Joseph's carpentry shop. There was no fanfare or grandiosity about him, and it all seemed quite ordinary and insignificant to the natural eye. How about the disciples? They themselves were small and unimportant in terms of worldly stature, not many of them were wise. Not many of them were mighty. None of them, except perhaps Matthew, came from the respectable upper echelons of society. Everything Jesus was doing seemed counterintuitive. He didn't launch his movement with the recruited help of aristocrats and politicians or influential theologians whom the people loved. He wasn't trying to make friends and influence people. He launched his movement with fishermen and common laborers and social outcasts. And during the process, it seemed like he made more enemies than friends. That's what Mark 3 is all about. Would anybody have looked at this little group and really thought that they were going to establish a worldwide kingdom? Well, the message of the parable is therefore similar to the message of the prophet Zechariah to Zerubbabel, who the Lord raised up to construct the second temple. Amid the humble beginnings of the work to be done on the temple, the people were discouraged and had neglected the building project. And so the prophet admonished Zerubbabel not to despise, you remember this? Not to despise the day of small things. Listen to what it says in Zechariah 4, verses 8 to 10. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, The hands of Zerubbabel have laid the foundation of this temple. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. For who has despised the day of small things? He says, for these seven rejoice to see the plumb line in the hand of Zerubbabel. The plumb line was a, a, a measuring tool that they used in order to build a structure, in this case, the temple. The seven that were upon Zerubbabel are the seven eyes of the Lord, speaking of his omniscience and omnipresence in all the earth. It says, these are the eyes of the Lord, which scan to and fro throughout the whole earth. The eyes of the Lord, the spirit of the Lord, was all upon Zerubbabel in order to ensure that the temple building process, which had been commenced and inaugurated, would be finished and completed. Well, in a similar way, we could say, the hands of Jesus have laid the foundation of the kingdom. His hands shall also finish it. Then you will know that this was the doing of the Lord of hosts. 
the sevenfold Holy Spirit, all the attention of God. It was all on the Lord Jesus Christ to ensure that a great kingdom would ensue out of a day of small beginnings. Thus, it was important for the disciples to realize that the blessing and hand of the Father was on the Lord Jesus to grant increase and growth and success to this enterprise for which they had forsaken all and on which they had embarked in reckless abandon to follow Christ. Well, in the third place, the parable speaks of the surprising growth of the kingdom. Humble beginnings, surprising growth. Verse 32, Jesus says that the kingdom, when it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs. It grows up until it attains a stature that is superlatively large and comparatively larger than all the herbs of the garden. In fact, black mustard is an annual, it's an annual crop, and though the seed was the size of a speck, its final height could range anywhere from 6 to 15 feet tall, and its proportions were such that it would be as wide as it is tall. There are ancient accounts of soldiers sitting on the back of a horse where they say, I was unable to see over the mustard bush because it's that tall. And so it would grow prolifically. It would grow fast. Its height would grow quick. And from a little speck to 6 to 15 feet in stature, that's a lot of growth for one year, for just a single year. Mustard was also a rather rambunctious plant. It was compared by the ancients to a weed because of its proclivity to grow and spread and propagate itself and because it would even grow in the wild. And so the Lord is saying that the kingdom starts small, but then grows surprisingly and prolifically over time. And that's exactly what happened. Began very, very small. This carpenter from Nazareth with his little band of disciples. By the time he finishes his earthly ministry, there are 120 gathered in the upper room. Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and we read in Acts 2.41 that those who received his word, those who gladly received his word, were baptized, and that day about 3,000 were added to them. How's that for exponential growth? 3,000. 120 to 3,000 in a single event. A short time later in Acts chapter 4, we read that After the arrest of Peter and John, it says many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. The chief priests, in the midst of this prolific, surprising growth of the kingdom, the chief priests did everything in their power to stop the influence and spread of Christianity. But after they arrested the apostles and put them in prison, the angel of the Lord 
set him free and commanded them to go out into the temple courts and to keep preaching the words of this life. And that's what they did. Thus, Gamaliel was led to pause and ponder the possibility that it was indeed the hand of God that was behind this surprising growth of the apostles' message. He said in Acts 5.39, And now I say to you, addressing the religious leaders, keep away from these men, from these apostles, let them alone. For if this plan or this work is of men, it will come to nothing. But if it is of God, you cannot overthrow it, lest you even be found to fight against God. The growth of the gospel and its progress and triumph was invincible and unstoppable because the hand of divine omnipotence was backing up the proclamation of the message. The gospel continues to spread. Philip preaches Christ in Samaria, and many believe and are baptized. The gospel explodes beyond the bounds of Judaism. Many of those who heard the word at the day of Pentecost, who were gathered together for the feast, then scattered to the nations, taking the gospel to the nations whence they came. Cornelius and his household received the gospel from the mouth of Peter, and it catches fire, and it spreads like wildfire from there to the whole of the ancient world. But then there's this Saul of Tarsus, and he comes bring, breathing out threats against the church. He sets out on a mission to destroy the church, to obliterate its existence from the earth. He breaks up churches. He imprisons and kills the followers of Christ. And he has a full authority from the chief priest to make a clean sweep of every city he visits and terrorizes. Will Saul succeed in expunging the church from the world? Will the growth and progress of the kingdom come suddenly to a halt? Will the wicked prevail over the cause of Christ and his kingdom? Will the disciples all cower in fear and leave off the preaching of the gospel to save their own skin? Not if the risen Christ is on his throne. Thus the man, who was the church's greatest liability, became miraculously its greatest asset. Saul the persecutor became Paul the propagator. The world's foremost opponent to Christianity became its foremost advocate and missionary. And he spread the gospel of the kingdom with such tireless labors and unabated zeal that he could look out at the other apostles and honestly say in writing, I labored more abundantly than they all. Within a single generation, the gospel spread from Jerusalem to the furthest reaches of the Roman Empire and beyond with duly constituted churches and cities all over the known world. The apostles saw many thousands converted as they took the gospel as far south as Africa, as far east as India, and perhaps even as far west as Spain. Spain. 
the Lord Jesus was proving that his promise was good when he said, I will build my church and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. Further persecution broke out under Nero and Domitian and other emperors. But the world's mightiest men found themselves powerless to prevent the progress of the gospel. In the third century, it was Tertullian who quipped that the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because the more the Romans murdered the followers of Christ trying to stamp out Christianity, the more the rest of the people witnessed those martyrdoms and saw something superior in Christianity that is worth not only living for, but also dying for. And so more and more converted to the way until the gospel toppled paganism and became the dominant religion of the empire. Which led, of course, to Constantine's famous edict of Milan in 313, which established official tolerance for Christianity. And then some less than 70 years later, in 380 A.D., the Edict of Thessalonica declared that Christianity was the official state church of the empire. The mustard seed was grown. From there, missionary efforts continued to accelerate the growth of the church. And if you study the progress of the gospel in the history of the church, it's absolutely amazing. Missionary efforts continued to accelerate the growth of this mustard seed. In the 6th century, Gregory, who was Bishop of Rome, sent out Augustine, not to be confused with Augustine of Hippo, this is a different Augustine, one from Rome, and he took the gospel to England. The seed that was planted there in England would eventually lead to Christianity becoming the state religion of England, with the crown confessing the crown of England confessing that Jesus Christ is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Patrick took the gospel to Ireland and saw massive success. Others went to other nations, to the barbarians in Germany and, and to other places. The gospel went out to the nations. The mustard seed kept growing. And when at last, after centuries passed, when the scholasticism of a corrupt and institutionalized church had eclipsed the gospel during the medieval era, when it seemed like the light of the gospel had grown dim, when it had seemed like lies and false doctrines would prevail, then the Reformation broke out. The gospel was clarified and purged of the leaven of the scholastics and their scribes. And it spread like fire over Europe. The word of God in the Reformation was newly unchained and unleashed and published in the world with a newly invented concoction of the printing press like never before. Awakening, revival, and renewal spread the gospel quite amazingly and exponentially beyond all human expectation. 
during the era of the Reformation and the nations of Europe that experienced it. You would walk into a common home and the common folk would be talking about the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel. What is the gospel? And what more can we say? Time fails us to speak of the golden age of Protestant orthodoxy in Europe, of the triumphs of Puritanism in England, of the shining lights in Germany and the Netherlands and Sweden and other places, many other places. Time fails us to speak of the spread of the gospel to the Americas and from North America to Central and South America. Time fails us to speak of the modern missionary movement of the William Careys and Adoniram Judsons and Hudson Taylors. Time fails us to speak of the multitudes of people who profess faith in Christ even in our generation. And I don't mean to make this a history lesson, but I think we can appreciate that the historical testimony makes it clear that the mustard seed has been growing all along. Surprising growth. Today, today there are more Christians in the world than in any previous generation. And even though sociologists and others are telling us we live in a post-Christian culture and the church is on the demise, Christianity nonetheless remains the largest religion in the world and the largest religion in the United States of America. 2.5 billion people profess Christianity in the world. Close to 1 billion of them are Protestants. In the USA, a survey done in 2019 found that 43% of the population professes agreement with Protestant Christianity. That's 141 million people. Quite the little mustard seed. And if you doubt the growth and progress of the kingdom in our world, all you have to do is look at the spread and propagation of the word in our world. We are told that the number of Bibles sold on average has more than doubled in the U.S. since 1950. The Gideons, God bless the Gideons, I, I love the Gideons. The Gideons distribute on average 70 million Bibles a year. And that means that they give out on average, two Bibles every second. That means in the U.S. alone, well, here's, here's some numbers from the U.S. alone. In the U.S. alone, we are told that 20 million Bibles are sold each year. That's 1.66 million Bibles that are sold every month, 384,000 plus that are sold every week, more than 54,000 that are sold every day, more than 2,200 Bibles are sold every hour. 38 Bibles are sold every minute in this nation. And in addition to Bibles sold, another 115,000 plus Bibles are given away or distributed every day. In the entire world, the number of Bibles sold and distributed is five times as much. About 100 million Bibles are printed every year. Add to this the great number of Bibles already existing and already in circulation from previous years. Add to this access to online Bibles and internet or smartphones. 
Add to this Christian literature and books and tracts and sermons and radio programs and other means of spreading the word, and the output is massive and global and constantly increasing. God's word is spreading, and it doesn't return void. So the mustard seed has experienced and continues to experience surprising growth. Finally, in the fourth place, this text speaks of the global dominion of the kingdom. The global dominion of the kingdom. The growth of the kingdom leads to eventual global dominion. Look at verse 32. Jesus said, When it is sown, it grows up and becomes greater than all herbs and shoots out large branches so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. From the smallest of all the seeds comes the largest of all the plants that are in the garden. And that's the point being emphasized here. The prolific growth and impressive size of this plant and its final outcome in comparison to its humble beginnings. It becomes the greatest shrub of all. Matthew and Luke actually call it a tree. They use this Greek word, dendron. It, it means tree. They call it a literal tree. Mark doesn't use that word, but the mustard plant wasn't a literal tree. But I think Mark and, or Matthew and Luke employed the word tree in order to stress the massive final size of this thing compared to its beginning. And so this is how one scholar put the teaching of the text. He said, What appears to be the smallest is nevertheless the greatest. And that which is hidden, the foundation of a work is laid that will encompass the whole world. End quote. But why does he and why do I say that the kingdom will grow to encompass the whole world? That it'll be a global dominion? Where do we see that in the text? Well, we see it, first of all, clearly foretold in many passages. Many, many passages throughout the Bible. Isaiah 51.5 prophesied of the coming and spread of the kingdom when God said through the prophet, My righteousness is near. My salvation has gone forth. And my arms will judge the peoples. Listen to this. The coastlands will wait upon me and on my arm they will trust. They'll believe. They'll have faith. They'll be true believers. They're trusting in the arm of the Lord. Who trusts in the arm of the Lord? Those among the coastlands. The coastlands who trust in the Lord are, in Isaiah's portrayal, those who abide in the remotest reaches and farthest corners of the earth. These are the isles or the islands that are way far off that the people of that day currently then had no access to. And so the message of the kingdom extends to the remotest parts of the world, Isaiah is saying. And then there's Isaiah 52.10, which puts it more straightforwardly. The Lord has made bare his holy arm in the eyes of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see the salvation of our God. There's also the famous Son of Man passage in Daniel 7, 14, 
which says that to him, the Son of Man, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. The eventual global dominion and cosmic extensiveness of the kingdom of God is abundantly predicted through the prophetic writings. But in our parable, there is an important detail that testifies to this as well. Jesus said that the plant shoots out large branches. It extends itself quite surprisingly so that the birds of the air may nest under its shade. Now, if you would look at a mustard bush, you wouldn't typically think of it as a home that is particularly hospitable to the nests of birds. But this mustard bush becomes hospitable to the birds that nest under its shade. And the language and imagery here are taken from prophetic texts that speak of imperial dominance and global reach. One of those texts is Daniel 4.12 which describes Babylon, where Nebuchadnezzar is relaying the dream that he had, and he saw Babylon depicted in this dream. And it says its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant, and in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. There you see the birds of the air. They're nesting in the branches of the kingdom of Babylon. And what he's saying is that, or what the text is saying, is that the Babylonian kingdom was so great and prosperous that in its domain, people from far and wide found hospitality and provision in it, just like birds come from afar to find a hospitable home in the branches of great trees. But the stronger allusion that the, our Lord Jesus is making is to Ezekiel 17 and verses 22 to 24, which also depicts God's kingdom as a plant that grows from smallness of stature to a monumental size. And this is what it says. Thus says the Lord God, I will also take I will take also one of the highest branches of the high cedar and set it out. I will crop off from one of its young twigs a tender one, and I will plant it on a high and prominent mountain. On the mountain height of Israel I will plant it, and it will bring forth bows and bear fruit and be a majestic cedar. Under it will dwell birds of every sort. In the shadow of its branches they shall dwell. And all the trees of the field shall know that I, the Lord, have brought down the high tree and exalted the low tree. I have dried up the green tree and made the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken and have done it. And so there's a young, tender twig that's taken out of the cedar and it's planted and it becomes a great, lofty, majestic cedar that gives refuge to the birds of the air. Our Lord is picking up directly on the imagery of this text, and he is alluding to it, but he gives it a paradoxical twist. Because when our Lord 
relays what he intended to relay about the kingdom. He doesn't portray it as a cedar, a mighty cedar, like the mighty cedars of Lebanon, but he portrays it as this small speck of a seed which becomes this rather unesteemed mustard plant. Well, these and other texts from the Old Testament suggest that the birds nesting in the branches of the mustard bush is an allusion to the inclusion of the Gentiles within the saving domain of the kingdom. Those who are far off are drawn into the kingdom so that they come near and take refuge in it. And thus the parable of the mustard seed contains within it a hint that the floodgates of God's grace would be extended to all the peoples of the world as his gospel as proclaimed and as God incorporates his people into the citizenship of his kingdom. The parable, therefore, is both a prophecy and a promise. It was a prophecy to those who first heard it, that the kingdom was going to grow beyond the expectations of anyone who beheld it in its then humble and present form. It would grow and grow contrary to all carnal expectation. But this is also a promise that the kingdom will progress and grow until it reaches its climactic state. It's a promise that the gospel will never lose its power that the gospel will always be working in the world until the work is done and it's time for the fullness of the kingdom to come. And it's also a promise that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ will never die. It'll never be extinguished. But rather, it will only advance and expand and ultimately triumph in the end. And we need to hear this in our day. Do we not? With all the resistance and opposition to Christianity that we face in the public square, in the marketplace, in the schoolroom, in the workplace, will the church yet grow and advance? This parable answers with a resounding yes. The church is the most resilient institution in the world, the most historically persecuted, the most historically opposed, and yet currently it is flourishing like nothing else in the world. Despite the attacks of the devil, despite the deception of false religion, despite the prevalent darkness of the world, despite even the failures of the saints, the church, like a tiny mustard seed, will grow and grow and expand its message and its witness and its testimony and its influence in the world until it triumphs in the end. The gospel shall succeed. The church will stand. World missions will expand. The kingdom will keep coming. And the cause of Christ will prevail. Do you believe that, brethren? I sure hope you do. I believe it. You see, this parable teaches us that we should have, we should have faith and hopefulness and optimism in the spread of the gospel and the growth of the church 
and the advance of God's kingdom in the world. No matter how meager our resources, no matter how pitiful our efforts, no matter how much rejection we face, no matter how little success we see with our eyes, no matter how heated the opposition to Christianity becomes, we can trust in this promise of our Lord that the work of his kingdom is spreading through our humble efforts to proclaim the gospel if only we are being faithful to speak it rightly and to sow the seeds. And if only we could see the end from the beginning, oh, how we would realize that the Lord uses our puny, often pathetic, and humble little efforts to accomplish what is exceedingly abundantly above and beyond all that we could ask or think. He is the God who makes great things out of small beginnings and who will build a great and mighty worldwide, global, all-encompassing cosmic kingdom out of this little message that the carpenter from Nazareth came bellowing out on the hills of Galilee 2,000 years ago. I'll close with this quote from J.C. Ryle and leave this to you to ponder. He says, let us leave the parable with a resolution never to despise any movement or instrumentality in the church of Christ because at first it is weak and small. Let us remember the manger of Bethlehem and learn wisdom. The name of him who lay there, a helpless infant, is now known all over the globe. The little seed which was planted in the day when Jesus was born has become a great tree, and we find ourselves rejoicing under its shadow. He says, let it be a settled principle in our religion never to despise the day of small things. He says, one child may be the beginning of a flourishing school. One conversion, the beginning of a mighty church. One word, the beginning of some blessed Christian enterprise. One seed, the beginning of a rich harvest of souls. We are laboring in the presence of the God who can make great trees out of little mustard seeds. And so let's believe that and let's never forget it and let's press on with that holy optimism as we march forward as good soldiers of Jesus Christ and the advance of the cause of his kingdom. Amen. Our sovereign Lord, we do... Thank you, Lord, and praise you that you are the King of glory, that you are seated on your throne, and that you are ruling and reigning through the mysterious providential outworkings of your eternal will in the world, that you are causing your kingdom to come, to grow, to expand, and that that growth will reach its climactic goal in ineffable glory forever. Fill our hearts, Lord, with this hope and let it be a mighty, conscious, and powerful reality to us. In the name of Christ, amen.